and welcome to Podcastles Season 2. You're listening to Georgia and I'm with my sister, Nikita. Hi everyone. So if you didn't manage to catch Season 1, you should definitely catch up sometime. But basically, we like to bring you all the history and crazy stories from all the castles around England. Every month, we look at a different county. Now, as we kick off Season 2... I think it's worth mentioning that we have made some slight edits. We have done a little uh, revamp, facelift of Podcastles, and we are now going to do a, a deep dive where we talk about one particular person or artefact that particularly interests us that pops up during the story of each castle. We've also decided that... During the ghosts and skeletons section, we're going to start rating the uh, the tea and the gossip. So, some very exciting things happening this season. Last season, gosh, let's see if we can remember it. We did Warwickshire, Oxford, Dorset and Berkshire. Yep. This season, we are kicking off with a little bit of Northumberland. I say a little bit. Because there are so many castles in Northumberland, we are going to have to do multiple parts. So this season, we're taking A to B of the Northumberland castles. <laughs> a to B. Oh, dear. Getting a good way in. So many. There were debates over whether we should just do Northumberland for this season, weren't there, Georgia? But we just thought, yeah. that's too many. Well, I've worked out there's there's four months worth of content for Northumberland. So we decided instead of giving you four months of Northumberland, we'd give you one month of just the A to Bs and we'll we'll circle back to Northumberland at another point, won't we? Yes. So you've got us for several more seasons is what we're saying. <laughs> we're booking it in now. The, the slightly sad thing is we were meant to be in Northumberland a few weeks ago and unfortunately, obviously, given the current situation, we were not able to go. Yeah. So we will have to visit as soon as possible. Yeah, when we can. Well, this is still brought to you from two separate locations. One day we'll be able to be in the same room again, Georgia. One day. We'll try again season three, baby. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, enough of our rambling. Should we get started? Sure. So, before we begin on today's feature castle, I thought we should probably talk a little bit about Northumberland and why there are so many castles up there because they loved a good castle in Northumberland. Basically, this is to do with the fact that this is very, very far north. In fact, it is on the border with Scotland. At times, parts of Northumberland were owned by Scotland, by England, backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, lots of wars and fights over them. So I thought we'd cover a little bit of that. We will do it in a lot more detail in this month's theme episode. But just to get a little bit of understanding, imagine a world before cars, before planes. Northumberland is a long way away from London and all the central ruling, all the kings. Obviously, they travel, but if the king is in London and there's problems going up right with the border of Scotland, it's quite difficult for the king to deal with that immediately. It takes a long time to get up there. They've obviously got to march or horseback ride. There's not tons of options. So they need a lot more defence up there so that they can deal with issues themselves. So that's both with the Scottish and also with each other. Nobles not getting on. So basically, 
Whereas in other counties, it's just the key nobles that might have castles. In Northumberland and other northern territories, you see pretty much every baron and any noble of any sort of significance has a castle that is fortified because they need to be able to protect themselves. 1415 lists show over 100 castles and pelés, which is a type of castle we'll come back to eventually. It became the rule, not the exception, to have a castle and be fortified, basically. So, now we understand why there's so many castles, shall we embark on trying to analyse them all? I think that sounds like a great idea, Georgia. Which castle are we starting with? We're going to start with Annick Castle. Makes sense. A... So Annick Castle is about as on the border as you can kind of get. It's not super far from the border with Scotland and it's sitting above Newcastle on the River Arne. Makes sense. Yeah. And pretty close to the coast. Okay. The east coast. It's worth mentioning that, you know, Annick Castle was kind of built in an area that is really important for controlling and protecting this border and this comes in quite a lot later on. In 1093, King Malcolm of Scotland comes in to take some of that land and he's killed by the then Earl of Northumbria. So... This is a particularly key position in the country. And the fact that it then gets fortified because of these fights, really, we're in the vanguard of of this English-Scottish war. Okay. So then when is the castle put up then? Annick Castle was built in 1096, so at the end of the 11th century, shortly after the Normans had invaded England. And it was built by a man called, and I'm going to botch this name, so I'm very sorry, Yves de Vesci. And he was the Baron of Annick. So he got the land from William II, who was William the Conqueror's son. I mean, previously, Mowbray, who was the the Earl of Northumbria that I'd mentioned, he had had that land, but it had gone back to the crown because he'd rebelled. Okay. And you know, when you rebel against the king, Georgia, you get your stuff taken away from you. You do. You get your toys confiscated. Yes. So then William gives it to this guy because he obviously supports the king a bit more. Yes. And so his daughter then marries a man called Eustace Fitzjohn. Okay. I I mention this because it connects to the castle we're going to study next week, which is Bamborough Castle. Spoiler. Spoiler alert. (laughs) And Eustace Fitzjohn is particularly important when it comes to King Henry I. To go through the history of this castle relatively quickly, we're going to skip ahead to 1136. Okay. To show how important Annick Castle is for this fight between the English and the Scottish, David I of Scotland, he actually captures Annick for Matilda. When the anarchy began, it was in part David of Scotland was coming in and kind of harrying the north of England to really put pressure on Stephen. At this same time, just to put it into context, you've got Joffrey, Matilda's husband, harrying the Norman lands near the borders of Angers. So it's kind of like a three-pronged attack. Well, it's currently a two-pronged attack because Matilda... Oh, of course, because Matilda doesn't come and harass England for quite a while. She, well, she's currently in her maternity leave. That is an annoying time frame, isn't it? Just as you want to invade a country. Yeah, it's really unfortunate for her. We all know how the anarchy ended, Georgia. And if you don't, you can uh, go back to a special episode we did in season one, all about the anarchy. Yes, but so we won't spend too long on it here. I think the important thing to remember is that Anik represents a really important part of the strategy and Bruce invading and attacking from the north. In 1174, jumping forward a bit again, uh, William I of Scotland okay. decides to siege the castle and uh, William actually gets captured during that. Because of the complicated situation between Scotland 
and England during this time. William I is actually also the Earl of Northumberland. Okay. But it's King John at the time and King John goes, absolutely not. I'll have that back. Yeah, because you get your toys confiscated when you rebel. So that goes away. It's Yeah, it's a bit confusing. Basically, I think, for, for context, the kings of Scotland are kind of supposed to submit to the king of England as vassals at some level, at some points during the history, and at some points they refuse outright and they just decide not to. In my head, it's a little bit like how the kings of England are also dukes of places in France, so are supposed to submit to the king of France for those areas, but don't. Yeah, originally... It's the English that they have the control and they say, well, okay, you can have a ruler in Scotland, but you're really a vassal of of England and um, you have to pay homage to the English king. But obviously over the hundreds of years, various kings go, this isn't right and rise up and that's where we get the Anglo-Scottish Wars. There you go. There's like 600 years of history just wrapped up into one sentence. <laughs> and, and completely, completely washed over. When we, when we get to more of Northumberland history and when we go up and do Scottish castles as well, we'll obviously get more into this. But in 1212, the Lord of Annick actually gets accused of plotting against John. Mm. Not that I personally would blame him because we all know by this point, my opinion of John is not high. And so they almost get rid of the castle. Interestingly, Georgia, he was one of the leaders of the First Barons' War in 1215. So when we say he was accused of plotting against John, I feel like maybe John was not being paranoid at this point. Considering he then had to deal with the Barons' War. Exactly. So we're going to skip forward, Georgia, a little bit to the later end of the 1200s. Okay. And the castle actually gets sold. And this might be a name you're familiar with because it gets sold to the Percy family. Ah, okay. A very well-known name in the following few hundred years. Yeah, they stay as the earls and then later on the dukes of Northumberland for so long into the future that, in fact, they still hold that seat today. Yeah, I believe so. And they're, they're particularly important in periods that are coming up now but also that we've studied so yeah as we said at the start and we will talk about more in Northumberland episodes the seat of the earldom or the dukedom later on of Northumberland is crucial because as we said London is quite a long way away and therefore they can't rely on the king to solve any issues whether that's with the Scots or with each other and so the earls and dukes of Northumberland are really relied on. Think about the King of the North in Game of Thrones. It's a very similar idea. They are basically the kings of the North. They are the people with the most control in the north of England for hundreds of years. Yeah, and so when they first get it, the castle, uh, Henry Percy starts to do some rebuilding. By the way, brace yourselves, because I think pretty much everybody from here on out is called Henry. Oh, fair, yeah. If you've listened to our Anarchy episode, besides Bob, or whatever his name was, everyone was called Henry. It wasn't Bob. Brian. It was Brian. Brian. I can't believe I forgot the name Brian. He's the only one with the name Brian, and I forgot it. Oh, well. So Henry Percy starts to do some rebuilding, and then his son, Henry Percy, then continues that. So there's a lot of stuff that the, the Percys are credited with protecting the English border with Scotland. So, for example, there was the Battle of Neville's Cross in 1346. So they, they fight the Scots then. The Henry, the, per, the Henrys, Georgia, wow. The Henry, I mean, you might as well. The Henrys, we might as well. The Henrys were important. No, the Percys, they're really important. So the first Earl of Northumberland, Percy, was actually part of the deposition of Richard II. 
Okay. And in favour of Henry Bolingbroke. Mm, also known as Henry IV. Henry IV. And his son then rebels against Henry IV later and dies fighting a battle against him in the Battle of Shrewsbury mm. in 1403. People may well know him from the Shakespeare play. That's Henry Hotspur. And we're going to get onto him later because he's going to be our Into the Archives dive, Georgia. Yes. But moving on into the Wars of the Roses now, the castle becomes Lancastrian, so it turns out for Henry VI side and, and the Lancastrians, until the Lancastrians are defeated at the Battle of Towton in 1461. Interesting. I don't know much about castles involved in the Wars of the Roses. Most histories focus on the battlefields. I think that's where a lot of the Wars of the Roses took place. If you're interested in learning more about that, I think we'll definitely do a theme episode at some point. But in the meantime, I know last Christmas time, there was a book released on the castles and the Wars of the Roses by Dan Spencer. So you should definitely check that out if you're interested. Yeah, so Annick seems to have been one of the ones that gets passed backwards and forwards after Towton, so between the Lancastrians and the Yorks. Of the castles that were sieged and were involved, it seems to be the one that held out the best against the opposing force. Mm. We said that the Percys have been in the castle ever since. They do lose it a little bit. Yeah, I assume there's a few little like glitches here and there. Well, yeah. I mean, if it's going to pass backwards and forwards, presumably they're not switching sides so frequently. <laughs> in 1464... Uh, the Earl of Warwick accepts the castle's surrender. Okay. The Percys get it back because they, they do switch sides. And the, and the fourth Earl, do you want to guess his name, Georgia? Is it Henry? It is Henry. Amazing. Henry Percy. He actually holds back at Bosworth, despite the fact that he's supposed to be in the rear guard for Richard III. Okay. And that's actually one of the ways that Henry VII is able to take the throne. Yeah. So these people are turning coat left, right and centre, actually, aren't I they? Yeah. I then, when I was reading this, got a little bit confused because, to my mind, it's the Earl of Stafford who is the one that turns it because he's married to Margaret Beaufort, who is Henry VII's mother. But I hadn't realised that the Percys had played quite such a big role in that. Yeah, there are a couple of armies that... Hold back. Yeah, Stafford and Percy particularly Mm. that hold back so they don't fight for either side because they're a little bit worried. I think because they're meant to turn up for Richard III, but they're waiting to see who's going to win because you want to be on the winner's side. So by holding back, Henry's like, cheers. And then he kind of owes them. Yeah. Because if they turned out for Richard, Richard probably would have won because they're quite big armies. I knew about Stafford, A, because he's married to Beaufort, but also because he's got a brother and they always turn out for the opposing sides. Whichever one loses gets brought back up by the other one. Whichever one wins petitions the king for the other one. Yeah, it's quite clever. I think we've talked about that a little bit before. We have talked about that before, but I just thought I'd bring it up again. So then we're going to jump forward way into the Tudor period. Okay, we've looked at the start of the Tudor period when Henry VII gets the throne. We're now jumping forwards... To Elizabeth. To Elizabeth, wow. Okay, granddaughter. And guess what this guy's name is, Georgia? Henry. Thomas. Ah, you always do that to me. I know, and you always fall for it. So we're now at the seventh third of Northumberland. Okay, so we've jumped on a few. So in 1572, Thomas Percy, he gets executed. Why? Well, he's a Catholic. Ah. He was actually involved in the rising of the North in 1569. By involved, I mean he's leading it. Mm, Yeah, that's not great. So not only is he not the religion that you're meant to be at the moment, but he's also rising up against the Queen to try and replace her with a Catholic Queen. Yeah, he's trying to replace her with Mary, Queen of Scots. Yeah. So 
that's not great. So initially, he actually runs away to Scotland. Okay. So he he manages to get away with it. So you you think it would be okay, but it's not. The Scottish nobles, one of them, sort of captures him, and after three years, sells him back to the English for two thousand pounds, which is a lot back then. Yeah. So he's got a high bounty on his head. Yeah, but he actually gets beheaded publicly, Georgia. Okay, not great. This is in the centre of York, after refusing to convert to Protestantism. It's like Ned Stark all over again. Yeah, he does go the way of Ned Stark. I want to say spoiler, but I feel like if you've not seen season one... If you haven't seen the first episode of Game of Thrones yet, like, that's not... It's not the first episode, it's first season. First season, fine. But yeah, it's not really a spoiler at this point, is it? It's quite near the start, isn't it? Anyway. But this guy actually gets beatified by... The Roman Catholic Church. He's a martyr. So beatification is that. Well, there are three layers of saint in in the Catholic Church. So you have veneration, which is like the venerable Bede, who wrote about early Christians in the UK, or well, not the UK, obviously in England. Then you've got beatification, and then you've got canonization, which makes you an actual saint. Yes. Okay. So he's given a nice little award by the Catholic Church. <laughs> To simplify. Yes, he's given an award for his efforts. So, yeah, I mean, we should we should point out that obviously rebellion seems to run in this family at this point because you've got the rebellion that they had at Shrewsbury against uh, against Henry IV. Then you've got this, but also in between those points, his uh, Thomas Percy's father, also Thomas. So it's not like they've just deviated for this one dude. In name. He actually gets executed for being part of the Pilgrimage of Grace. Oh, under Henry VIII. Yeah, so okay. that's, you know, a huge a huge deal. And a lot of it is to do with the fact that the, the monasteries are being torn down. Basically, it's the, it's the conversion from the Catholic Church to the Church of England. And there's a lot of rebellion against that. And that gets crushed. And crushed violently as well. But as a, as a fun fact, is actually this Thomas Percy, the Pilgrimage of Grace Thomas Percy, was the one who Anne Boleyn was with before Henry VIII. Interesting. Was like, hello. Anyway, yeah, if we're going to then continue this uh, rebellious streak, in 1605, so we're skipping ahead to James the First of England and Sixth of Scotland. Remember, remember. The 5th of November. Gunpowder, treason and plot. Yes. So in the 1605 attempt to blow up the Houses of Parliament, mm. a cousin of the Percy's, who's also called Thomas Percy. What is going on? I thought it was Henry. They can't change their favourite name. Henry's out of fashion. Thomas is now the cool name to have. Okay. And so he's he's killed running away in the gunpowder plot. Right. And the uh, Ninth Earl of Northumberland, His cousin. who is a Percy, is then dragged before the Star Chamber, which is like the highest court chamber that we have in England at the time, because they believe he knows about the plot. They were worried that he was involved because his cousin was involved and they're Catholic and yeah. Yeah, they can't prove it, so he doesn't die, but they do fine him £30,000. How much is that now? It's more than £6 million. Oh my goodness, that is quite a fine. Yeah, on a hunch. Can you imagine if you had to pay a fine because they're like, we think you committed the crime. We can't prove it. Did he pay all of it? No, he actually only paid 11,000. I mean, it's still quite a lot. That's still like 2 million. Well, no, it's it's like, it's more than that. It's almost 3 million. Yeah. He then got put in the Tower of London 
To be fair, in relative luxury. Yeah, high nobles were treated like relatively well in the tower. Yeah, well, I read something about him being in there with the bunch of other of the people that James I had put in the tower and they were all just sat around discussing things and they had servants and, you know, they were all right. So after the seventh earl got executed after the, the rising of the north, Annick starts to be less inhabited though. So as you can see, we've kind of dragged a lot of this history. In my head, is is coming much more further down south. This is much more London-centric drama that we're talking about now. But it also means it gives us an opportunity to talk about some other people. So in 1650, during the English Civil War, because no castle in this series escapes some kind of mention of the English Civil War unless it was built afterwards... Cromwell houses a bunch of prisoners from the Dunbar battle there. And that's the only thing I've got for that. But <laughs> nice and brief. Yeah, it's used as a bit of a, a bit of a prison. Okay. And then in the late 1700s, you get a bunch of um, renovations happening to the castle. So we are moving away from the battley side of this. Okay. The very end of the 18th century in 1799, George III makes it a dukedom. Right. So it's no longer the Earl of Northumberland, it's the Duke of Northumberland. Yeah. Okay, I didn't realise it was that late. I thought it happened sooner than that. Yeah, I, I did too. And so Hugh Percy is the first Duke of Northumberland. Okay. But he actually wasn't born a Percy. He changed his name to Percy when he married his wife, who was a Percy. Okay, so that's how they've kept the name Percy there for so long. Yeah, I think so. I was going to say, it's quite rare that it's successfully passed to a male heir mm. for that long. Because normally, as we've seen before, the name dies out or whatever because there's a, a daughter and she marries out. And Yeah. Interesting, okay. And supposedly, I don't know how substantiated this could be, but apparently when George III updated Windsor Castle, he was inspired by the changes that Hugh and Elizabeth had made right. in Annick Castle. Okay. And Annick Castle is, I think, still the second largest castle to be lived in after Windsor Castle. Oh, right. Okay. It was, you know, renovated a bit again in the 1800s. They undid a lot of the 1700s work. But then we come to the modern day, really, Georgia. Okay. And the most influential part that this castle has played in the history of this world. What is that? Because it was, in fact, one of the sets for Harry Potter. Yes. I was hoping we would get to this at some point. It's the flying scene, right? The broomsticks in the first film? Yeah, it's it's in the Philosopher's Stone. It's the flying scene where Draco takes Neville's rememberal and Harry demonstrates some mad flying skills. <laughs> it's also in the Chamber of Secrets. They crash the flying car there. Oh, right. Yeah, so I thought that was really cool. I spent way too long researching this for the fact that this is going to make two lines into this show, Georgia. And it was also used in Downton Abbey Christmas specials. Okay. Deep dive. So now we're going to go into a brand new section. This is where we take a a character or an artifact that is particularly prominent in the story of today's castle. And we just, we go into it in a bit more detail. So Nick, what have you picked for today's deep dive? Well, of course, I have chosen Harry Hotspur. Henry Percy. One of the many Henry Percys. One of them. Okay, Hotspur, that's Wars of the Roses, correct? It is pre-Wars of the Roses. This is Henry IV. Right, yes, of course. So, for anyone who's a fan of Shakespeare, or maybe the Timothy Chalamet movie, The King, on Netflix, you probably recognise the name Harry Hotspur as, as Henry Percy. So, he's he's in a lot of Shakespeare. In Shakespeare, he's written as kind of the same age as... 
Prince Hal or who becomes Henry V. He's an interesting figure in those plays, but actually it's quite different in reality. He's a lot older than Henry V. Okay. Because obviously Shakespeare, there's a lot of poetic license in everything that he wrote. Yeah, yeah. So Henry Percy or Harry Hotspur was actually born in 1364. So he's born at Annick Castle. Okay. And dies at Shrewsbury in 1403. Mm. So we know how this is going to end. He's a rebellious, it's a rebellious chap. Until almost the very end, he has a very glittering career. Okay. He's a really interesting guy. He's kind of a star. So he's knighted by Edward III at 12. He fights at the Battle of Berwick at 14. Okay. And I was busy uh, playing Pirates of the Caribbean on my Game Boy DS at 14. So I'm not really sure how he had the emotional maturity for that. But there we go. He goes to Ireland in, in 1380, which isn't that much long. You know, that's 16 then in 83, he goes to Prussia. Mm. So this this guy's got a, an impressive military career. From a very young age. Yeah. Under Richard II, he's made warden of the East March and then actually goes to Scotland on campaign in 1385. So this is actually where the nickname Harry Hotspur comes from. There's a couple of different reasons I've heard the Scottish nicknamed him Hotspur, but basically it's to do with the way he was fighting in Scotland and the way he was becoming important in Scotland and, and his prowess. Rising in the ranks. And- yeah, and his prowess and the way he fought and, and things like that and, you know, his, his, all of those things. So that's where the name Hotspur comes from. Interesting to me because I just assumed Hotspur came from the idea that he was quite hot-headed. I actually thought it was like a rebellion kind of nickname, but apparently not. Yeah. So it's still pretty good up until 1402. He just keeps going up and up. He becomes a knight of the garter. He goes to France. Well, he goes to Calais. Then he backs Henry Bolingbroke, who becomes Henry IV, when they have a successful rebellion against Richard II. And he and his father are really involved in that. And then he gets made lieutenant of North Wales by Henry IV. That's in 1402, and it's important to sort of... During this time, we've got a lot of fighting going on in England against Wales. Owen Glendower, he's causing a lot of problems for the English king in Wales. And the Percys are quite heavily involved in trying to squash that rebellion. And this is where this shining career of Harry Hotspur really starts to go downhill. The Percys get really fed up with Henry IV. Right. In part because of the Welsh rebellions. He's not solving these issues in the way that they think he should. He's also, they've had some family members or a family member in particular get, he's been captured and held hostage by the Welsh and... Henry the Fourth is not going to ransom him. I know in in Shakespeare it talks about how he was actually Henry the Fourth believed he was treasonous and so wasn't going to. And this is where you really start to see these cracks grow. And it's important then to remind ourselves that although the Percys and Hotspur in particular has such a high flying career with the king, he is like you say, like the Percys are, as you said, kind of like the king in the north. And they're incredibly powerful and they don't like that this is going on. He's also, Henry IV, on top of that, is not giving them... He's making them hand over their Scottish prisoners. He's not giving them what they feel they deserve for this fight that they're having on the Scottish border. They're continuing to look after look after the interests of England up there and they don't feel like they're getting the credit for it. Yeah, so they're expected to protect the country from Scotland yet don't feel they're getting the rewards for it. No, and I'd imagine this whole thing of handing over the Scottish prisoners is a problem because 
I'd imagine ransoming them back. Give them quite a lot of money. Yeah. Okay. So, so what do they do about it? True to form for their rebellious streak that is going to become incredibly prominent. In 1403, they rebel against Henry. Yeah. I read something by a historian uh, called J.M.W. Bean, and they said that he they were actually working with the Welsh that they'd been fighting against right. in this. And so in July of 1403, they meet the king at the Battle of Shrewsbury. That's when Hotspur dies, yeah. Yeah, we, I, say, I say they met... They met him at Shrewsbury. From the other stuff that I've read, it sounds like they turned up and he was there with an army that was like a mic drop. Right. So they were massively outnumbered. It didn't go well. And then this Owen guy didn't show up. So this was not going to end well. We don't actually know how Hotspur died. I read a couple of different things about whether it was, you know, he was being cut down or whether it was an arrow. I've read more things that suggest it was an arrow than not, but we don't really know. So... He dies and he's he's retrospectively named a traitor properly. Yeah. And so his head ends up being sent to York uh, and it's stuck on a gate. As a warning to everybody else who wants to rebel. Yeah. And then they, you know, for added measure, quarter up the rest of his body and send it to different locations around England. But don't worry because they actually do return it to his wife in the end. Great. Charming. Right, that is and not so, nice. But I thought that was a good note to end on, Georgia, given our next section. So that is Harry Hotspur. The deep dive. Interesting. Okay, first deep dive of the season ever. And as you say, bit of a gruesome one to end on. It's going to lead us straight into ghosts and skeletons. Ghosts and skeletons. So Ghosts and Skeletons, we mentioned, has had a little bit of a revamp as well. We've decided that we are now going to start rating the T out of 10. So you are going to tell me some of the gossip related to Anik, and then I am going to rate how good that gossip is. And of course, you at home can get involved as well, whether you agree with me or not. Let us know what you would rate this T out of 10. You can go to Podcastles on any social media or drop us an email, podcastlespodcast at gmail.com. So the first one I'm going to mention, I'm going to mention briefly because I, I read it in a book and I'm not entirely sure what the sources are, but it was in a book about sort of ghost stories of the north of England. So there's a very gruesome story about the village of Annick and a hermit who lived there and he was seen as incredibly creepy and horrible during his life. He was like killing animals and eating them and all of this stuff. And they actually go searching for him one day in the village because one of the girls of the village gets attacked and they believe it's him. So they find him in his hut surrounded by all these dead animals and he himself is dead okay so they go to bury him in the churchyard with a lot of protests because they think he's creepy so all these bad things start happening in the village and so they actually they believe it's the ghost of this guy so they go to dig him up and his body's not actually there (gasps) his body's been set up against a tree where nearby i think nearby okay and so they're like oh and eventually they end up taking him outside of the church. I think they, like, church grounds, and I think they end up burning the body. But it's all a bit grim. Uh-huh. Yeah, so that happens. And then and then the haunting, I think, stops. 
So once they once they destroy the body, because originally they didn't want to destroy the body, right? Because yeah. it's still a Catholic. Yeah. Like it's still a member of the church. So the church want to bury it in the graveyard, but eventually the people get their way, right? Because they think that there's like a haunting sort of spirit there somewhere. It's weird. I've actually heard a few stories like that whilst I was at uni. We studied a medieval source. I can't remember if it was in England or a different country, but the villagers believed basically in zombies because it was a similar story that they buried some plague victims or something and then they kept like getting out of their graves and finding them elsewhere and things like that. I mean, some sort of grave digging sort of situation going on clearly, but spooky. I think it says quite a lot about the psychology of of whoever's telling the story like the, whenever the story arises it tells tells you something about the psychology of the of the people and the fear that was going on at the time yeah is is my hunch i've not read anything to substantiate that <laughs> i think maybe i did at some point and it's half remembered so now it is my job to rate that tea because on the one hand, mm. it is very ghosts and skeletonsy. Often our stories are just sort of gossip and they're not actually to do with ghosts. This one is actually to do with ghosts, which makes me inclined to put it up higher. But at the same time, as you mentioned, very little actual evidence. I mean, personally, I, I don't believe... I don't know. I feel like there's a logical story behind this that we don't know and we don't have the sources to support it. So that pulls it down in my mind. But then, you know, it is very... Mm. scary at the same time it's it's ghosts and skeletonsy so i'm gonna give it given that we don't know where the ghosts and skeletons are going in the future i'm gonna say five okay. do we think that's fair i think that's solid yeah we'll put it nice and middle ground it doesn't really have any long-term impact on the history of the castle or the town like beyond the point where they destroy it yeah it is it's not like it's the oubliette, is it? So No. Okay, so you've got one more for me, right? Yes, and this one is about a vampire, so we're continuing the probably not true theme. I don't know what you're talking about. So <laughs> supposedly there was once a lord of the castle who thought his wife was being unfaithful. He thinks that the best way... Catch her. ...confront this is to catch her in the act. Right. And so... He climbs onto the roof to surprise her right. while she's cheating. I'm not really sure where she's cheating on him that he thinks the roof is going to help is the right place to be. Okay. <laughs> Maybe there's a window in the roof or something. Let's carry on. But he falls and dies. So okay. he doesn't find out. We don't know whether she was cheating or not. So he gets buried, but the people in the town keep seeing him. Right. And their animals keep dying. So they're like, what's going on? And so the story goes that they decided that it was him and it was his fault. And when they dug him up, his body was really swollen with blood. And so that's why he's called the Anik Vampire. Right. So they burn the body and then it all stops. And this story is actually in the works of William of Newburgh. Okay. And it's interesting because while I'm sure that if they did dig him up, that's something to do with the decomposition. Yeah. Of the body, um, he refers to the Lord of Anik as a bloodsucker. Right. Which is why that's now translated down. Is the story sort of like they think that their animals were dying and he was drinking the blood of the animals or something? Yeah, basically they, they were saying that he was drinking the blood of the animals and that's why they were dying, because he was a vampire. This poor man, all he wanted to do was find out whether he was being cheated on. So strange. I feel a little bit bad for him. And when was this? I mean, it's recounted by William of Newburgh in the 1100s. And I think it's one of the earliest, if not the earliest, use of bloodsucker we've got. 
Okay. In in England. So Well, that is interesting. And that is a legitimate source then. Well. Just thinking rating the tea wise. Not about the story, I mean It's it's legitimate that people were telling that story. Yeah, but that automatically makes it a source, you know? Like it's not nowadays people claim that back in the day this was a story, you know? Yeah. I feel like it's less convoluted than the one before. Yeah. We actually have it written down in the eleven hundreds that this was a rumour going around. And I feel like that makes it important to study as it tells us a lot about how people back then thought and how they explained the unexplainable. That instantly makes it more interesting to me, to be honest. I, I, I would argue that this is a better story. And also kind of historic importance in the fact that it's kind of the first mention of bloodsucker and sort of vampire ideas we have in England around this time. So I'm, I'm going to say we give that a seven. <laughs> They are uh, my ghosts and skeletons. Well, thank you very much for those. The first set of ghosts and skeletons for this season. If you disagree with how we have rated today's ghosts and skeletons, do get in touch. Podcastles on any social media or you can drop us an email on podcastlespodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Or if you've got any ghostly stories that you think could be of interest in later episodes, we'd, we'd love to hear them. What did you think of the castle, Georgia? I think it was a great start. What an important castle to kick off with. Yeah, I thought it was I thought it was interesting. I don't really know a lot about Northumberland's history, so it was cool to to read about it and the the Percy's it's it's great to find out more about them because all I really knew about them were kind of side stories in in bigger stories. Yeah, they pop up a lot in history, so it's nice to actually have a proper look at some of them. When I've done Pilgrimage of Grace and things like that, they've, you know, briefly come up and then obviously Shakespeare. I enjoyed learning more about mm. Hotspur. Yeah. Of course, we haven't really ever looked at a border county before. The first defence in international warfare. So that's really interesting. We'll be doing some more of that this season as well. Gives us a chance to talk about wars with other countries as well as just civil wars, which is what we focused on a lot in season one. So yeah, what a great start. What are we doing next week? We're doing Bamber Castle. Well, I'm looking forward to that a lot. I will see you next week and bye for now. Bye for now.